Well, good morning. Uh, as most of you know, if you've been here for a number of months, we've been slowly working our way through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Chris, last couple of weeks, have been talking about uh, Mark chapter 13, looking to Jesus' return. We're going to back up a little bit, and we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12 this morning. I often wonder and worry as uh, we do these long series, whether in Sunday school, Bible studies on Wednesdays, or early morning church services, whether we have the whole context of the entire book that we're going through when we come to a particular passage. Just to remind you, one of the major themes throughout the Gospel of Mark is, who is this Jesus? Right? It begins with, this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, right? the glad tidings, the good news of, of who this Jesus is, the Son of God. And then, then we hear that he is the Son of God from from on high, God the Father speaking down to, about Jesus during his baptism. But if, you, if you're working your way through the Gospel of Mark, you'll see that, that only God the Father, whenever he speaks, or when the evil spirits speak, are the only times in the Gospel of Mark you get a positive affirmation about who Jesus is as the Son of God. What you have in Mark is a lot of questions. Mark chapter 1, verse 27 asks, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Mark 2, verse 6 and 7. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning the heart. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Mark 4, verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Mark 6, 2 says, And on the Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue, and many heard him and were astonished, saying, Where does this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How were such works done by his hands? These questions are stated over and over, and we'll be looking at another question. What authority does Jesus teach? The kinds of things that he does. Why is it? Then the question is, why were they not giving the answer? Matter of fact, the, the first human, think to yourselves, who's the first human person to actually acknowledge who Jesus is in the Gospel of Mark? I wonder, just think in your head. It's actually a Roman. The Roman centurion, as Jesus dies upon the cross, he says, truly this is the Son of God. Mark, Mark does an interesting thing. By not answering the question, he makes his case for who Jesus is. When we come to this passage here, Mark chapter 12, what's, what's just got done, the, the events preceding this, is Mark chapter 11, we see Jesus' triumphal entry. Right? So he comes in on a donkey, humble, to begin to, to initiate kind of an Old Testament prophecy that, that a king would come riding on a donkey to usher in the kingdom of God once more. But then what does he do right after that? We, we find that he goes into the temple, right, and he cleanses it. He turns over the money changer tables and he tells them, you will not make my father's house a den of thieves. You can imagine that this would cause a little ruckus. I mean, it's not just imagine if I came into the church service or going over the coffee table and that. It would be almost like me going into the first bank of downtown and start throwing up all over the tables and saying, stop with all this debt that you're holding over the people. And then at night, Jesus kind of goes away from Jerusalem, which is what you do when you think people are about to take you out, right? You're probably a little scared. And then we find that in, in Mark 
11, verse 27, 28, we read this. As they returned back to the city the next day, they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking to the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do them? You can imagine the scene, can't you? I mean, it's, it's not just kind of another day in another time of business at the temple. They, I imagine they're looking around, hey, if you see that Jesus guy coming back, you need to let us know. We need to stop him at the door. We don't need him coming into the temple and causing a ruckus once more. And so they meet him at the door. They, they, they want to know what in the world he's doing, what authority he has to kind of disrupt their lives and disrupt their agenda. Well, Jesus uh, challenges on that, kind of catches them in a little theological quandary about John the Baptist, and then finally says that he's not going to answer their question. Well, at least not straightforward. Because in this passage, that's exactly what Jesus does. Is he explains to them by what authority he does the things that he does as he is the Father's Son. Please rise as we read God's Word this morning. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed, and some still one another, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. You may be seated, and as you do, I will pray. Gracious Lord, Holy Father, I just pray that you would give us eyes to see this morning and ears to hear. Father, that your spirit would give me the words to say that your words will be spoken here this morning. Let me be diminished that you may be lifted up, Father. Uh, We will talk about a great many difficult and hard things this morning, and I pray that your spirit that brings all wisdom will give us clarity into your truth, that we will see our wills changed, our hearts changed, as we look to see what our Heavenly Father is like and maybe get a glimpse into our own hearts. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well... When Chris first told me I was going to do this passage, I kind of read it and came up with kind of one little pithy statement that was going to be kind of my main point. And even though there was a lot of reasons to change it as I went along, I kind of kept it. 
Uh, so I've got to make the case for it now that, that I was right in my first reading. But I think it's very important that we think about this issue of, of why did the tenants, and in this parable we, we have many reasons to believe that the, the, the tenants were the religious leaders of Israel. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. Why is it that they had such a hard time seeing who Jesus was? Why would they not want to buy into his agenda? He was proclaiming the gospel, the good news, the, the possibility of salvation and acceptance before a holy God, and they couldn't see it. And what is it in our lives that make it difficult for us to see the gospel when it's proclaimed to us? And, and kind of my main point that we're going to flush out throughout the sermon this morning is written in your bulletin on page uh, 13. There at the top is that unmet expectations can frustrate our ability to experience the gospel. And when these expectations become the gospel we are looking for, we can't see Jesus, even when he's standing right in front of us. You know, we've always had we've all had times where, where maybe our expectations weren't exactly met. And we'll be looking at throughout this morning Kind of what were the expectations of the scribes and the Pharisees and the people of Israel? And, and were those expectations such that it made them difficult to experience the gospel message that Jesus was preaching? You, you know, the, the easy illustration is there's been times in my life where, where I've been drinking a, a soda, a Coke, and I'll reach down and pick up somebody's glass of sweet tea. And no matter how good that sweet tea is, that, 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 that thought in your head is, that's the flattest Coke I've ever tasted, and, and it's disgusting. It doesn't make any sense. My daughter recently took, she was drinking a cherry icy, and she accidentally picked up my wife's Coke, and she has never tasted Coke before in her life. And to her surprise, she, she about spit it out. It was so disgusting to her mouth, even though we, Coke is a good thing, right? But if you're not prepared for it, it's something that's hard to swallow. You know, a better example is... Uh, when me and my wife decide to go to certain movies, now, I read, a, most of you who know me, I, I read a lot of books, but I don't read a lot of fiction books. My wife reads a lot of fiction books, and she reads them rather rapidly. Matter of fact, you know, when the Lord of the Rings series was out, she, she not only would read the book for the particular movie every time it came out, she would read all three books, both before and after we would see each film. So... By the time the third one came out, she, she was probably on her 12th or 15th reading of the entire series. So as we're sitting in the movie, more often than not, there would be a slight change in the details as the, the movie didn't quite line up with what she had read. And under her breath, mumbling and, and just in discontent, that didn't happen in the book. I can't believe why. I don't know why in the world they would do that. There's no way that they would do that in the book. It doesn't even make sense. I don't know why in the world they'd have to change it. And for those moments in that time, she had an inability to really experience what was going on in the movie. She couldn't take it as it was given because her expectation was it would happen exactly like the book. Although she should learn by now it's never going to happen exactly like the book and just the enjoy the movie for as it is. I did get permission for that story this morning. <laughs> so those at Sunday school will, will get that joke. Well, what we'll look at this morning is, is really this story of rejection. And then towards the end, we, we have this promise of restoration. Now, just because there's two points here doesn't mean I'm going to go short. I have a lot of points within these. Uh, 
I'll just warn you, the last time I preached, it was at an African-American church north of Birmingham. They, they start their worship service about when we do, 10, 10.30. I promptly finished my sermon that morning at 1.30 in the afternoon. Not that I preached that long, but that's just kind of how things go. I don't think that they got what they were expecting that morning either, but we'll go forward. First, we'll look at a story of rejection. Now, when we look at parables, we, we do have some freedom. Usually, parables have as many main points as main characters. Uh, as most of you know, we, we've heard the story of the prodigal son, right? And, and you can talk about and teach a lesson on the parable of the prodigal son from the perspective of the elder son, from the perspective of the prodigal son, and from the perspective of the father. And, and very much the same way when we look at this parable this morning, we can talk about it from the perspective of the owner. We could talk about it from the perspective of the tenants, or we could look at the son, the rejected one of God, or rejected by the people. But tonight we're going to focus mostly on, on, on the tenants, but, but I, just, I didn't want to just wash over this reality of, of what this parable tells us about our Lord and our God. If you look here at the beginning of the parable in Mark chapter 12 again, so as a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And he leased it to the tenants and went to another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of his vineyard. Notice here what this says about the man who planted the vineyard. What has he done? He's planted the vineyard. He's put a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine tower. He's done everything required. Now, the vineyard is, is throughout the Old Testament is a common uh, picture of Old Testament Israel. We find in Isaiah 5, verses 3 and 4. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do with my vineyard? Have I not done it? God, over and over, cared for his vineyard. He brought them up out of Egypt, out of slavery and bondage, and in exile brought them out and cared for them and gave them manna for food. He gave them prophets to call them back to their first love. And constantly, over and over, no matter how many times, God pleaded with them. They rejected him. They rejected his words and continued to fall away. We, we can overlook these, these points in this uh, parable if we think too closely and, well, the the vineyard represents this, and the fence does this, and the pit does this. I, I think the point is simply this, that God has done everything necessary, required for his people. And do we believe that this morning? You, you, you know, we have expectations of things that we want in our lives, and, and maybe things aren't going exactly how we would expect them. So sometimes we have to remind ourselves of this truth, that God has done everything required he has sent us our Savior to redeem us. How are our expectations blocking our ability to even experience the gospel when things don't quite work out in our jobs or our family or even in our church life? When our expectations aren't met, we have a hard time listening to the reality. You might have come this morning expecting to hear Chris preach and your expectations are not being met very well this morning. Here's your stuff with me. But I do wonder. I wonder about myself. What, what expectations that I have in my life, what dreams and desires and goals that, that maybe don't quite match up with what God is doing. God, over and over in the Old Testament, sent servants to Israel pleading with them 
to come back to their first love. Jeremiah 7.25 says, From that day your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day. I have presently sent them servants of the prophets to them day after day. You know, God didn't just say, here, I I brought you up out of Egypt. I brought you up to the land. Here's the law. Go do it. And now I'm going to remove myself from the situation. No, he's constantly involved. He was constantly there ministering them and calling them and pleading with them. Please come back to your first love. I'm the Lord, your God. The God that called you out of Egypt, the God that called you out of bondage and slavery, come and worship me. Amos was rejected even by the high priest before, much like Jesus was. Jeremiah and Uriah suffered persecution because they tried to flesh out the will of God in adverse circumstances. Over and over throughout the Old Testament, the prophets were not listened to. I wonder how how much I'm willing to listen to the prophets in my own life, but we'll get to that in a moment. But we see this this faithful, this God that that constantly and continually cares for and desires to, to draw his people to himself. And what we see throughout the Old Testament is over and over the people just not willing to submit to their Lord and their God and their King and desire instead to go upon their own way. You, you, you know, the great picture of this in the Old Testament, of course, is in the, the life of the prophet Hosea, who God calls him, and, and you read the story of Hosea, and, and you're almost like, this can't be true. That God would actually call one of his prophets to marry a woman that would prove to be a harlot and continually prostrate herself, prostitute herself, and, and continually go out to the point where Hosea not only had to keep bringing her back to his home, but literally buy her back to purchase her, because she and her body were being sold. It, it is a, an amazing story. We can't even get our mind around it, but, but that is us. We constantly can't look to our Lord and believe that he has provided all that we need. We have our own expectations. Well, let us look here at the, the, the tenants themselves. Back here in Mark chapter 12, beginning now in verse 2. And when the season came, he sent a servant to them, to the tenants, to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And they sent him another servant, and they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another with him, and he killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. Why is it? Why is it that, that Jesus didn't meet their expectations? And why is it that the prophets of old never met the expectations that the, the people of Israel were longing for, such that they would not listen? They couldn't hear the gospel. I'll say once again that our unmet expectations can frustrate our ability to experience the gospel. When these expectations become the gospel we're looking for, we can't see Jesus, even when he's right here in front of us. And I wonder how many times I do this in my own life. That, that the gospel for me is something different than, than the reality of what the gospel really is. Matter of fact, in, in Matthew's version of this parable, and uh, you don't have to turn there, Matthew 21, it, it's stated as a question. What would the vin owner do if his servants were treated as such? And the people replied, well, they would come in and destroy and kill. 
the wicked tenants. And he was right. right. This was the judgment that was to come. But I want us to take a little moment, step back a little bit in, in first century history to kind of understand what were the agendas that Jesus was walking into. Because it's hard for us to understand the, the circumstances around these passages without taking a little time and and history is not always fun for all of us, and it sounds very academic and maybe somewhat tedious. Um, that, that, that's my default deal, so I'm sorry for that. But in Jeremiah 31, we, we have what's called the New Covenant, right? The, this promise that Israel over and over has not lived up to the covenant that God has given in Moses. And in Jeremiah 31, he goes, there's going to come a day where I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. That I'm going to restore Israel to what it ought to have been. And, and the way that was taken by Israel, that, that, that God was going to come and get rid of all those oppressors that tend to put us into slavery, that, that make our lives more difficult, uh, that we would one day finally come back out of the exile that we find ourselves in. What is interesting about right before the times of the New Testament in about 166 A.D., there was a giant revolt of the Jews under the great ruler Judas Maccabeus. And Judas, or what Judas the Hammer was his nickname, which is easier to say, uh, what he did is he overthrew the Syrian army and eventually took back Jerusalem. In 164 A.D., he cleansed the temple. And for once, after centuries, the Jews were now self-ruling. They were now in charge. They were now kings of their own destiny. They thought the new covenant had come, that God was on their side, that he was working on behalf of them, and they were able to throw out their oppressors. And this lasted for a wonderful hundred years. And then a Roman general by the name of Pompey came through and under the, the, the leadership of Caesar Augustus once again took over Jerusalem. And so now the Jews saw that, they well, we must have been wrong. God must not be on our side. Maybe many of them struggled. Well, what is it? Is God not going to come and overthrow our oppressors? Is he, is he ever going to fully deliver us from this exile that we find ourselves in? We need to get these Romans out of here. These pagans who are defiling our worship, who are defiling our temple, who are not allowing us to live the way that we want. See, sometimes we talk about the Pharisees as well. You know the Pharisees, they... They believe that you earned your salvation by being as holy as you possibly could. Right? We, that's our Sunday school lesson. Well, that's true in a sense. But, but what was salvation for them? And I might ask you yourselves, what, what, what is salvation for you in your daily life? Because for the Pharisees, yes, they believed in a, in a resurrection. But for them, salvation was that Israel would return to its glory. So, so their goal was... If Israel could only be as pure as they possibly can, then God would once again act on our behalf and we would be able to get the pagan Romans out from Jerusalem and we would be able to rule ourselves once again. One New Testament scholar says the Pharisees believe that the way to save Israel is to make sure that Israel is very, very clean. Then the Messiah would come and deliver faithful Jews from the Romans and destroy the unfaithful Jews and Romans and rise up a true and faithful Israel as the greatest nation on the planet. So their salvation was a political agenda. 
They long, if we could just be clean enough. And now if we think back to the Gospel of Mark, we can, we can see the Pharisees' frustrations with him, right? Because whenever he, he changes kind of what Sabbath means, that would not have gone very well because here is this rebel that's not allowing Israel to be as clean as we want them to be. Here is a rebel that's eating with tax collectors and sinners, that, that he is not living the, the ultra-clean life that we have set up. And, and if we let this guy keep going, then God is never going to act on our behalf. See, their, their false expectations of what it was going to take for God to act on their behalf led to an inability for them to experience the gospel that Jesus was proclaiming. Well, what about these, these Sadducees, these, these priests? Most of the priests were from the Sadducees. What were they looking for? Well, Calvin speaks of this. He says, certainly the chief reason why the priests raged against Christ is that they might lose their tyranny, which might be said to be their prey. You see, as another scholar states, not all Jews are hoping that something new will happen. The Sadducees aren't. Most of the priests are Sadducees, and they have many privileges and much wealth. As long as Romans protect the temple and protect the Sadducees' privileges, they are content to have the Romans in their land. You, you see, the Sadducees like to proceed. You, you know, like Jesus talks about how they, they like to pray in public because they get their due then, right? They get their honor because they are seen as very religious and very righteous. And they get their status as being the upper class, the priestly class. And that made it impossible for them to see what was really going on. Because they didn't want to lose that status. They thought that they were all right. They thought that they were in great shape. They were the priests of God, and they loved their wealth and their status and their prestige among men. You see, what both the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't realize, they didn't really look at themselves. What they didn't realize is, is the great plan that Jesus was coming along to do. He was coming to deliver the people from an exile. He was coming to deliver the people from a great oppression, but not the one that they were looking for. It has been said that he came to deliver Israel, but to deliver Israel from the real oppressor, the one who comes to free Israel from slavery that started in the Garden of Eden, not prominently the one that started with the general Pompeii. He did come to set them free, but their expectations frustrated their ability to experience the gospel. Because those expectations became what they were looking for. They, their expectation was that if we're clean enough, then, then God will move on our behalf and get these Romans out of our land, and then we can be the greatest nation on earth. And because that was their goal, they could not see the gospel that was standing right in front of them. Well, this led to, to the ability for them to, to reject the Son you see, at the heart of this is, is, is what Calvin called it. All true wisdom comes from knowledge of God and knowledge of self. You, 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 there's a hint of truth in their expectations that the Sadducees and the Pharisees had in, in, in some ways. That they were longing that, that God would be their God, that he would restore Israel in some way, that, that there was a, a time when things would be undone. But they didn't have a true knowledge of self. They couldn't see the real problem. They thought the problem was all the pagans that were in the way. They, they lost sight of the, of the initial mission of Israel, which was to be a light to the world, a light to the nations. And they did not see that they were part of the problem. They did not have any real knowledge of self that, 
that it was their sin that needed to be dealt with. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do. Because it was their sin that was oppressing them. Well, if we look again here at Mark chapter 12, we see the story of the son that was rejected. After they killed these prophets and the servants that continually come to Israel, calling them back to their first love, he said he still had another one, beginning in verse 6, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those sentenced said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What the owner of the vineyard will do, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. You know, this is a, a, a difficult passage. John 1, 11 tells us what? That, that Jesus came to his own and his own would not receive him. You know, this is a parable of a murdered son and is a picture in, 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 a, in, a, in a tight space of, of all of Old Testament history of God continuing to love his people, to call his people, to desire that his people would repent and turn back to him, and they constantly rejecting his pleas. But what's amazing here is, is here we have the rejection that actually becomes the cornerstone. This is this alludes back to the, the, the assurance of pardon that we read that Peter who is in some ways responsible for the Gospel of Mark. Maybe you don't realize this or not, but, but Mark hung out with Peter a good bit. And, and the reason that we have Mark in our, in our Bibles is because of his association with Peter. Many believe that Mark got his Gospel information by, by listening to the sermons that Peter... Of course, he, he also got it from the Holy Spirit, but, but his, the circumstances of his writing his association with Peter... And as we read this stone that the builders rejected, 1 Peter 2, um, beginning here halfway through verse 7, the stones the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. As we move down, we, we see that we are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That that which the leaders rejected has become the very foundation on which the the world comes to be built up into one spiritual house through the Son, who is the perfect sacrifice, who gives his life as a ransom for many. We have this promised restoration because it is marvelous in our eyes. And I wonder if we see that this morning. It's a, it's a difficult concept to think about. It's it's, it's both that they were wrong for rejecting Christ, but it, but it turned out for our good. And, and try to figure out how, how these concepts work together, right? The, the, what, what God desires and, and how we ought to live and respond to his gospel message. And how he has decreed all these things to come about. Because it says, as the scriptures have said, right? This was prophesied that Christ would be rejected. It was in the full purposes and the foreknowledge of God that though he would go to his own and his own would not accept him. And I wonder how many times in our lives that we don't accept everything that Jesus 
would have for us. I mean, it's easy for us to put all this into, well, this is a nice little history lesson. You know, those really bad, wicked tenants who rejected Jesus, you know, but this isn't about me. I don't reject Jesus. I'm on church on Sunday mornings. I'm here singing songs of praise, and and, and I, I listen to everything that I hear in God's Word. I accept it fully, and I trust in every word that comes from the mouth of our Father. Is that true of you? Do, do, we, do we accept the, the prophets of our age? And I'm using prophets in a more uh, loose sense. But, but when we do get wise counsel, when we hear the sermon preached and, and maybe we hear something that, well, that, I don't really agree with that. I mean, that's, that, that might mess up my life. That might mess up my agenda. You know, I, I mean, I like Jesus, but some of this other Christian stuff, I, I really don't know if I'm going to buy into how I ought to live my life. Because I have my own dreams, my own aspirations. You know, I think where the key is, and, and I'm getting close on time, but what we really need to do and seek is, is, is pray to God that this can be us. We can be just like the wicked tenants. We can reject the stone. We can reject the word that comes from the mouth of our Father. And, and what our desire should be is that our wills would be transformed to God's will. And this is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray the way he did. He said, O Lord, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, as we move along in in, in the Christian life and what our desire is, it isn't just that we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior and then we know all of our sins are forgiven and, and, and this is great and wonderful and we come back every morning, but, but that we pray continually that my will would be transformed and conformed to His will. That I wouldn't let my expectations about what I think my life ought to be or what my church ought to be or what my job ought to be or what my family ought to be or what I would desire all these things to be, but I would allow His will to be done in my life. And do we desire God to change us in that way? Or are we content to reject, to beat or scorn, or talk bad about people that might give us words of wisdom? Maybe we like to, well, you know, they're a little bit overly religious over there and they do things a different way. You know, we, we don't really like them. Do we trust that God can do that? You, you know, and one of my favorite verses in the Bible, because I'm still waiting it to work itself out in my life, is in, in Philippians where it says that if he began a good work in you, he will carry it on to completion. And, and I can look back at my life and say, well, I, I'm pretty sure I, I see that spot where God began a good work in me. And I've really got a long way to go on that completion part. And those of you who know me well can affirm that. Because there's a lot to do. And, and, and there's a lot of places in my life that I, I realize that I'm, I'm still seeking my will. I'm not seeking the Lord's will in that particular situation. You know, when Jesus began to do many things and began to cause a little bit more of the heat in Jerusalem, it says here in John 6, 66 through 69, that 
After this, many of his disciples turned their back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, And you have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, and you have the words of life. Do we believe that Jesus has the words of life for us this morning and and be able to accept the gospel? Not only as the forgiveness of our sin, which it is that, and that is a marvelous thing to praise, but, but the gospel doesn't end there. The gospel isn't just you are forgiven, but that God can transform your will. That he can change you. And do we desire that he would actually be working in our lives? And do we look for ways in our lives that, that we're trying to let our expectations rule the way? Let me tell you this morning that, that I, I believe as I've worked through this passage, I see that there are many places in my life where my expectations frustrate my ability to experience the gospel. And when those expectations truly do become the gospel that I'm looking for, I'm not seeing Jesus in it. And so I ask you to think to yourself and to pray, what, what is it in my will that I'm desiring and I'm expecting, whether it's out of your job, in your family, or this church, that your expectations aren't being met? And ask yourself, are they frustrating my ability to see Jesus this morning? And pray that he would transform your will. Because he can. I... Uh, I kind of struggled with, with, with figuring out the ending illustration, and I just decided uh, during Sunday school that I would come back to an old faithful story from the Chronicles of Narnia at the very end where, where Aslan is back to life. The table is broke, and he comes before Lucy and Susan, and they're wondering, how in the world could this be, that you could be standing here alive? And although the wicked queen had a great agenda, you know, in her mind, she thought, all I have to do is get rid of Aslan. Then I can once again rule the world. I would have all of Narnia to myself. Much like our wicked tenants, right? The leaders of Israel believe that all they have to do is get rid of this Jesus. And the Pharisees thought, well, hey, if we get rid of Jesus, we reject this stone, then we can make sure Israel is holy enough for God to come back and work on our behalf and get rid of these Romans. And the Pharisees thought, if we could only get rid of this Jesus, then we could get back to doing our money changing. And the people would respect us and we would have our status. And they would no longer be going out listening to his sermons, but they would be coming to us in the temple. And we would have our status and our righteousness and our wealth. And the queen thought that too. As long as she could get rid of Aslan, everything would be fine. But Aslan tells uh, Lucy and Susan, at least I think that's who, who he tells it to. I did read that book and watch the movie. And there are a couple things I would think on that one. But he says that the queen forgot to read the deep, old ancient magic. That when an innocent dies for another, because Aslan was dying in the place of Edmund, who the queen had owned. When an innocent dies for another, the table would crack and death would begin to work back on itself. And Christ, as the chief cornerstone, comes and dies as an innocent sacrifice for you and for me 
Not only that our sins would be forgiven, but that death would begin to work back on itself and his kingdom would come and we would begin to be transformed. A new creation has dawned. Do we believe that Jesus' kingdom has come in a sense and is coming? Do we trust that things will be at one point all made new? As Revelation tells us, in that day, every tear will be dried. Do we believe the day is coming when sin and death will be no more? Do you have that expectation? Because if your expectation this morning is purely about, well, this is a great place to bring my kids, this is a great place to have family and community, and this is... Now, now I go off Monday morning and I have my job and my wealth and my prestige and my status and everything is great. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about a God who wrote his son into the story of human history and died on the cross for your sins. But rose again so that you can now live a resurrected life. Are you trusting in God for that, to change your will to his? Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Gracious Lord, Holy Father, I do uh, thank you this morning. Father, I pray for, for any place that I might have caused some confusion that your spirit would bring clarity. Father, I just pray and trust that, that, that we can believe that if your spirit has begun a good work in your, our hearts, that he will carry it on to completion. That if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and all things are being made new. Father, I pray that those would not just be words. Father, that we would have great expectation that you have not only done a marvelous thing in our eyes in the past at the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, but you are continually doing marvelous things before our eyes and our lives. And in the future, you will come again. Please, Lord Jesus, come now. We pray. Amen.